Welcome to this, the final episode in the Goodwill Hunters Winter Series on Water for Development. I'm your host, Michael Wilson, CEO of the Australian Water Partnership. And during this series, I've been joined by my wonderful co-host, Rosie Ween, CEO of WaterAid Australia. Thanks, Michael. And in this final episode, we're going to be asking where the world needs to go next in tackling the global water crisis and realising our goal of clean water and sanitation for all by 2030. We'll reflect on some of the major themes that have come out in our conversations with our fabulous guests that we've been talking to over the course of this winter series of the podcast. We'll be doing this with two highly experienced thinkers and practitioners in international development. Duncan Green is Senior Strategic Advisor for Oxfam Great Britain and Professor in Practice in International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's the author of a seminal work for both activists and practitioners on how to understand and identify opportunities for positive change in international development called How Change Happens, published in 2016. Duncan will be joined by Melita Grant, a Senior Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Melita's also spent time working on integrated water resource management inside the New South Wales government. She is a recognised development practice and design expert. Her expertise ranges across issues of water for development, transboundary water management, gender equality, human rights and social inclusion. We hope you enjoy this final episode. Thank you, listeners. Water scarcity and water security challenges are growing at an unprecedented pace, affecting billions of people globally. The United Nations has said that in over 300 locations, we can expect to see conflict over water by 2025. This is exacerbated by continuing population growth and the impacts of climate change. So what happens if we do nothing? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from the Australian Water Partnership. As a Water for Development initiative supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Australian Water Partnership mobilises Australia's internationally recognised expertise to drive action towards sustainable water management in our region and beyond. We're so glad you can join us for this crucial conversation on our shared global water future this winter on Goodwill Hunters. I'm joining you from Ngunnawal country in the ACT and Rosie from the lands of the Kulin Nations in Melbourne. We extend our respect to elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their care of our lands and waters. We extend that respect to all of our First Nation listeners. Melita and Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Duncan, Many of those we've talked to over the past five episodes of the podcast have emphasised how much is already known about the water crisis um, and that many of the solutions to the crisis are also known and even obvious. Impacts of water scarcity, quality and inequity are local. They can be easily seen. So with this and perhaps other persistent developmental dilemmas, How do you think we can explain the puzzling inertia that exists in pursuing sustainable development goal six? 
I think there's, I think activists have a real uh, dilemma in that being right is not enough. And yet many activists think that if they're right, that should be enough. And they get very angry that people aren't listening to them. They say, look at all these papers, these peer-reviewed articles. You know, we're right. Climate change is happening. We need to change the way water is you know, uh, provided. Why aren't you listening? And I think one of the things I teach at the LSE is what do you do after you're right? What's next? You know? um, and one of the things I find useful in terms of trying to understand drivers of inertia rather than drivers of change is unpacking it a bit into ideas, interests, and institutions. Right? So if you're a lefty, you assume that the reason something's not happening is because there's some rich uh, yeah, person yeah, who's stopping it happening, interests, right? And that's sometimes true, but often it's not. Often it's institutions. So institutions just don't have procedures that can cope with what you're suggesting. You know, maybe aid agencies only have five-year time horizons and you're saying this has got to be a 20-year project and it just does not compute. So that's one thing. But I think thinking about this, this podcast in advance a little bit, yeah, I think ideas is one of the really interesting blocks here. Um, yeah, you have some really interesting sort of your, your previous people you interviewed, you know, Mina Guli talking about there's no people-focused call to action. There's no North Star. And that phrase, North Star, really stuck with me. Um, Alison Baker saying there's too much left to the engineers and the technocrats. And um, I found myself wondering whether it's actually a, a problem as well as a great thing to have a fantastic organisation like WaterAid because then everyone else says, oh, it's okay, we can leave it to water aid or whoever, you know. And there isn't a poverty aid, and there isn't a food aid. And maybe that's why you get bigger coalitions working on poverty and food. So I just think there's a problem here that, that, that there isn't a big North Star campaign. And perhaps the people, the, the water geeks who are in charge, haven't, don't really want one. They're quite happy being the experts on this topic and don't want to spread out the joy. So, Duncan, I really want to build on this piece that you've pulled out around the North Star because we we heard that from Mina and also from Kevin Rudd. He really emphasised this missing piece that he sees, you know, even though this is a collective action problem and we've got the normative agenda of the SDGs, we don't have a North Star or an international focal point or as Howard Bamsey emphasised in the episode, really thinking about water and climate change there's there's not really anyone working to persuade people that they will ultimately benefit making concessions from their sort of local somewhat narrow interests potentially I mean Melita how would you characterize what you see as missing to really get that movement of the collective action on the water crisis Thanks. Well, as a water geek myself, I'm very happy to have a go at this question. And to tell you the truth, I'd say that the first two targets of the SDG 6 are pretty clear. They are smart goals. They're smart in terms of being specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-bound. Globally and as a sector, we're aiming for universal and equitable access to safe and affordable drinking water and sanitation for all by 2030. It's a pretty nice target. Um, unfortunately, we're nine and a half years away from that. So, um, look, I'm going to throw a couple of stats out just to kind of create a bit of context to the way I see this. Um, at the moment, we have 2 billion people living without safely managed water and 3.6 billion people living without safely managed sanitation. Um, these numbers globally are, of course, appalling when you consider the health, livelihoods, 
well-being implications of, of those billions of people, including children. Um, but when you look at the graph of how these numbers have been moving over the last 10 years, we find that globally we've moved from around 61% of people in the year 2000 with safely managed drinking water to now around 74%. Um, so that's an increase of 13% of in 20 years, which of course is far too slow, but it is moving in the right direction. Uh, for sanitation, it's uh, even more challenging. We've gone from around 20% of people globally uh, to 54%, 54% of people in the world with safely managed sanitation. Again, far too slow, but it is improving. Uh, but it is, it's mind-boggling when you consider the impacts of not having safe, clean places to go to the toilet, um, and, of course, the health and environmental impacts of raw sewage seeping into the environment and, and coming into contact with people. So, look, I say all these stats just to give a sense of where we're at and where we've got to go, and I think it's really useful to have a clearly defined um, international target and targets, which we do have. But I do also agree that many of the ways that the management of our water resources locally and globally are a classic case of tragedy of the commons. Um, I don't think that's an innate function of us being human or, um, you know, sort of, you know, being selfish innately, but um, it's more a culmination of centuries of pursuing certain individualistic worldviews, deepening equalities, um, pursuing um, well, off the back of historical exploitations, um, and the way that we've compartmentalised and privatised land and water resources. So in essence, I'd say we've designed a system that encourages people to focus on themselves and their own immediate needs um, while disincentivizing collective action and accountability. So totally agree with Duncan there about the institutions and the systems focus, um, really, really spot on. Uh, so I guess... It sort of brings me to the point that our societies are largely focused on extrinsic values like wealth and success and power, et cetera, um, rather than intrinsic values, the concern for others, social justice, connection with nature. And I would say that this is fueled by political leaders running short-term political cycles. Duncan just mentioned then the, the cycles with which our institutions function very influential in the way in which we treat uh, an issue like water and sanitation crisis, which is so long-term and the sorts of infrastructure and systems you need to put in place um, are very long-term. I mean, the infrastructure, 20-year life cycle, et cetera. So our institutions and the, the cycles that they operate within are, are mismatched to the, to the problem. Yeah, so look, a way to change this current trajectory, I guess, intergenerationally is to engage young people in discussions and education around ethics. It comes all back to the point around the North Star, like how can we be moving in a direction together? Uh, I don't think necessarily um, we are lacking that international coalition or organisational framework because I, as I just said then I sort of think we do have some of the ingredients of that but I think that we've, we're lacking in the, the vision and the values piece. Um, so yeah I think that by engaging students around ethics and around values and vision is probably what we need to be doing right now in order so in order to change those 
those systems, individuals, institutions um, down the track. Thanks, Melita. Duncan, did you want to build there? Yeah, I mean, my wife, who has a PhD, doesn't believe graphs, okay? Um, uh, and lots of people don't understand percentages. So I'm just thinking, you know, if you are not allowed to use graphs or percentages because you're trying to convince people like her, um, what do you do? And, that, and, and I think climate change activism has got a bit further than water activism on this. There's a really, really interesting work by a guy called Alex Evans who says, we need to tap into religious myths if we're going to stewardship of, of, of creation, which is present in all major religions. You know, there are things which resonate with people who don't do graphs and percentages, which we're not using on climate change. And that's surely the case with water. You know, water is so big across all the major religions, you know, for flood, baptism, cleansing before prayer are water activists thinking big enough to say okay so how do we build with the major religions and religious leaders and faith organizations which are after all the organizations most trusted by poor people around the world as research always shows is water activism ambitious enough to start thinking on that scale rather than we've got the best graph yeah it's and we really heard that, Duncan, when we spoke to Karen Millward, an Aboriginal woman, a water leader, and that, as you say, that deep connection to water and, and country uh, that comes through in major religions, but also in many First Nations communities. So I want to keep building here. I mean, Melita, you highlighted systems, and that's a theme we've really heard throughout uh, the series. And of course, Duncan, that's been a key focus for you, thinking about systems and how we can bring about change, whether that's suddenly in response to a crisis um, or about how we could do tactical, nimble, politically aware application of pressure or just being ready to seize an opportunity uh, that comes up to, to create big change. What do you think as we're grappling with getting more attention and shifting the pace and energy behind addressing the water crisis. What do you think is most likely to, to force change when it comes to water? I mean, a lot of what I've written about and, and sort of seen in doing case studies on change is this importance of what political scientists call critical junctures, you know, big shocks, big moments. Change isn't continuous. Change often clusters around these big spikes. You know, and sometimes it's a good spike and sometimes it's a bad spike, but, you know, change has these big moments and for for activists who are trying to bring about change an awful lot revolves around their ability to prepare for either a known unknown or an unknown unknown as we're in the week of donald rumsfeld's death we should use the only interesting phrase he ever came up with um uh how do you prepare for those moments and then how do you spot them quickly and then how do you react to them and it's yeah Alison baker talked about covid should be a wash moment you know, and no question, you know, clearly, suddenly, everybody is talking about hygiene. Everybody's talking about washing your hands. It ought to be a wash moment. Is it? Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure because it seems to me that, the, you know, I'm not in the water sector, as you can probably already tell. But when I look at it from outside, I see lots of big discussions on this is a social protection moment. You know, this is a role of the state moment. Um, this is an inequality moment. I don't really see this as a, a water moment. Or I haven't seen it as I just sort of surf general development discussions and political discussions. So I think that's a really interesting, if that's true, that's a really interesting question of what could the water lobby, the water community do differently to make this a water moment? Because it's really important that you make the most of these spikes and it doesn't always work. So, you know, if you look back in, in, in history, 2008, global financial crisis, 
We all thought the global order had changed. The G20 was going to be the new steering committee for the world. Um, social protection was going to be universal. Everybody was going to care about the, 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 the negative impacts of the financial sector. Didn't happen. You know? And I, so these moments do sometimes just go past and sometimes they're seized and you get new institutions, new ideas, new social norms. So what's going to decide this one? Yeah, I love that. How can we use this critical juncture to be that that wash moment? And it's great having an outsider, Duncan. We love new perspectives. Yeah, so so Melita, I think you know this this kind of leads to a lot of your work in Australia and internationally on um, particularly the consensus building work you've done around water management and wash. Um, and if we are looking for opportunities to change the game, um, whether those are opportunities we've driven or opportunities that fall into our lap the way uh, Duncan has described, um, what do you th- see as the possibilities that, um, that changing the game might be delivered through, for instance, either innovations and technology, which, um, which is something that Malcolm Turnbull Uh, talked a bit about in his episode or making the case to actually see the value of water quite differently um, as as Karen Millward discussed with us through perhaps the more holistic and cultural values framing that Indigenous traditions can can often give to us? Well, I'd start by saying water is everything. It's an economic good, it's a global commons, it sustains culture, connection to country, it's livelihoods, it's food, it's good health. Uh, We therefore need to ensure it's relevant and appreciated by all these different sectors and in all these ways. Uh, So I think I'll start by talking about the economic piece. Um, And I'd say that economically we really need politicians and governments to understand that the benefit-cost ratios of providing water and sanitation services just makes investing in WASH a no-brainer. Rosie, as you know, WaterAids just recently released a report, a really great report on investing in WASH, and um, it shows that investing in basic hygiene and also in water sanitation in climate-resilient systems, uh, the benefits are of an order of between 3 and 21 times the amount of investment. So, from a financial perspective, as I said, it's a no-brainer. How do we get our politicians to understand that and also to see it as political capital because having water and sanitation, you would think, would definitely lead to votes. Um, certainly has in Australia. So I think that turning that um, benefit-cost ratio into political capital is, is a really important strategy. And... Um, I, but I really love what Karen Millward said about cultural values and, and helping to frame and guide our response to exploiting water resources. And I, I agree with her that drawing on Indigenous knowledges and understanding and managing and valuing water, um, it needs to be beyond just, you know, the economic, you know, benefit-cost ratios. And, um, and it's essential to river basin management, holistic understandings of our catchments, to planning our towns and cities, to protect environment and and cultural values. And it gives meaning to our lives. Like it it connects us to the places that we're we're in. And and we were talking about, you know, the graph and and how it's true. Graphs don't speak to everybody and stats speak to everybody. But being um, on the land next to a river, uh, being... uh, you know, close to 
waterways and and water you know environments that are dependent on water systems is very powerful and and has resulted in epiphanies for a lot of people and that's why they're in the water sector uh, so I think that that connection to country and that emotional and cultural connection is is absolutely key and anyone um, who's read Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu will get a better understanding and a deeper appreciation of just the, the um, complexity and the sophistication of Indigenous First Nations people in Australia in terms of their management of water and, and country. So I've got a lot to learn there. Um, just, I guess, on, an, on another point around the innovations and technology piece, uh, we have such sophisticated water treatments and storage and distribution equipment in so many contexts. Um, we've got innovations in decentralised options and recycling and grey water, third pipe systems, fit for purpose applications, desal, nutrient pollution management, all the solutions there. Um, but what we don't have is investment in the instruments, in, in sorry, investment in the people to manage these systems in a lot of contexts. Um, we also don't have the life cycle cost analysis of of how much does it cost to maintain and service that equipment over time and build that into our financial models from the start. That's where a lot of wash equipment and investment has been wasted because of this lack of understanding of that whole life cycle cost analysis um, and also the lack of investment in the people to run the systems because it's very labour intensive to, to manage water and, and sewage because it's heavy uh, and uh, it, it requires, you know, gloves and equipment and, and technical skills. <laughs> uh, so, Duncan, on that, on that point of um, often in development we're looking at the same problems in the same way and we're trying to um, shift that dial to look at maybe the same problems in different ways. Uh, but looking at problems as perhaps new problems, for instance, uh, uh, witnessing the Trump administration might um, might have encouraged us to look at democracy in the Western world in a different way. Uh, are there other examples you can think of where there's just been um, a paradigm shift in an important development debate that you know we might look to in terms of um, opportunities to to shift the water discussion. I think if you're looking for a, I've mentioned climate change before. I think women's rights might be worth thinking a bit more about in terms of you know, a global movement that has been very dispersed. It's a real movement. It's not a you know uh, one organisation or one aim. Uh, and it's spread into all sort of unpredictable areas of policy making, of practice, of norms, of how people think. Um, and I think that it might be interesting to think how would the water movement mimic the women's movement a bit more or learn from the women's movement. Uh, that could be quite interesting. One of the things I'd say there is that, you know, the, what's happened with the women's movement is that, that it's not just sort of um, instrumental. It's not just sort of, you know, getting more people into the discussion. You've actually had interest, different things being discussed as a result, including more discussion on water. But just, you know, thinking about some of the research on, on women's leadership, on uh, what's gone on in, in India and South Asia with women's re uh, quotas in local government, it's changed what local government does. So I think there are some really interesting lessons to learn from that, I think. 
So, yeah, Duncan, um, it, one of the things about this podcast we're pr quite proud of is that we got one former Prime Minister to talk with great passion about the importance of menstrual hygiene and another one to take very frank aim at anti-science propaganda in the mainstream media. Uh, and on that women's empowerment piece, we've heard some really powerful stories about um, women in water resources, Rose Kagwa's initial struggles to be taken seriously as a woman water leader in Uganda to the transformative work being done by the Water for Women Fund in developing countries in the Indo-Pacific to, to progress um, with improving access to basic water and sanitation services being led by Navara Kine in, um, in PNG with, with WaterAid. So, Duncan, you've written about one of the trends uh, in your career in international development being the rise of women demanding um, a part of the decision-making process uh, and, and exerting developmental leadership. Um, so do you think this phenomenon is one of simply, uh, well, would you characterise it as, as just simply about increasing diversity and democratisation? Or has it changed fundamentally the discussion about how priorities are set and how resources are allocated? So if you look at the research from India on, on panchayats and uh, the, the, the local smallest, the sort of lowest tier of, of local government, uh, which introduced these uh, women quote, women's quotas, women's, they're called reservations in India, um, the first generation did exactly what the sexist said would happen, um, which is that uh, men got their wives to stand for uh, the local council and basically told them what to do. But that didn't last very long. In the second, second round of elections, women started putting, uh, yeah, you could actually see, because it was introduced slowly across India, so you had a natural experiment, you could actually see more attention to things like health and water in, in, the, in the panchayats with women's reservations. So you did actually get a shift there. So I think there are some, yeah, there's definite, Evidence and yeah, one of the, the one of the big sort of memes during COVID has been, ooh, look at the countries that have managed it well. Look at who their leaders are. Hmm, maybe there's a connection that there's so many well-run countries managing COVID better with women leaders. So I think you know, right from the top to the sort of grassroots organisation, there's evidence that it really does make a substantive difference. It's not just about being more inclusive. But one of the things I was thinking about on this was whether there's a messaging challenge here in that. Um, you know, if your image of women and water is very traditional, is women carrying pots on their heads, feminists aren't going to get terribly excited about that kind of discussion about um, women because it's actually a form of oppression rather than a form of uh, inclusion. So I think there's some interesting questions on the messaging there, which I'm sure, Melissa, you've thought about much, uh, and Rosie, you've thought much more than I have. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what you think, how you manage that slight tension. Yeah, absolutely. And because we, we know that women have access to water sanitation and hygiene is essential to everyone, but women have a unique experience, particularly from period to menopause, of their needs for water sanitation and hygiene. But also, as you say, they bring unique value and wisdom and we need to work on the, the messaging. I mean, Melita, what are some of the reflections that you've seen around ensuring that women are um, at this the table making uh, decisions around water, sanitation and hygiene. And, of course, you're on the uh, panel. 
with the Australian Water Partnership, their expert review panel. Uh, and I'm sure that you've seen, despite this increasing recognition of the gendered dimension around water, we still, still see these water challenges, not recognising the impacts of women and, and not listening to them. Why do you think it is, from your perspective, that we're not seeing the reality and the potential of women as agents of change in water management? Thanks. Yeah, well, as Duncan explains so well and accessibly in his book, it's all about power and norms. Uh, and these power norms have been created by people so they can be changed by people. I'd say um, patriarchy doesn't just hurt women. It hurts the majority of boys and men and sexual gender minorities as well. So we've all got an interest in changing it. Um, in essence, this is why women and girls are seen as passive users and carriers of water and water systems rather than knowledge holders, decision makers, leaders, people that have, an, have interesting and important perspectives to offer the water resources and wash sector. Uh, so, yeah, we're playing catch up in terms of women in decision making and um, technical wash roles, uh, engineers, policymakers, leaders, our institutions in that management um, level and above, even our um, academic uh, institutions, research organisations. So there is, um, there's definitely some issues in terms of gender parity within the organisations that we work in, in the wash sector broadly. And wash sector is utilities, it's government, it's CSOs, research organisations, it's catchment management organisations, river-based organisations. We've got such a plethora of of institutions and so few of them have a, a good representation of, um, of women and sexual gender minorities, people with disabilities. So I guess that's how I would start to tackle this question or, you know, the, the point that you made there, which is really, really sound, um, that we need to probably start to look at our own institutions within the WASH sector and water resources management and I can talk a little bit about a piece of research that we've just finished actually under the Water for Women Fund. And that was looking at women in all their diversity in the water sector uh, in Indonesia and in Cambodia and looking specifically at uh, government employees at the commune level in, in Cambodia, but also um, at um, district level uh, and above in Indonesia. And we've interviewed those women and we've asked them what has enabled you to to be water leaders essentially they are leading wash programs in their communities and in government what's enabled you what's been a challenge um, and what would help you in your role and and to assist making those sorts of decisions that uh, that Duncan just talked about in terms of steering communities towards more sustainable water futures and we've come up with a guidance note that will be available um, on our website and also a database of over 200 individual actions that organisations can take to diversity and inclusion and equality within their water-related organisations. I mean, it is applicable to any sector, to tell you the truth. You could pick that up if you're in the energy sector, um, in the whatever sector, but it is shaped around the water sector and the wash sector. And we've got the database because 200 actions obviously is, um, is quite overwhelming. So we've divided it up into 
kind of like a trajectory of the the um, the life cycle, the work cycle, um, from attracting re recruits into your organisation um, and that recruitment process, even prior to that. So ensuring that young girls um, and boys know about about um, professions within the wash sector at large, all of the all of the um, the system elements as well, not just the engineering and the STEM subjects. Um, through to uh, the kind of dynamics that are on the job that hinder women and minorities in the workplace. So that's everything from ensuring that that um, family and work juggle is um, is properly <laughs> supported within the workplace, but also um, valuing different perspectives and voices and and views from a range of employees, and then enabling them to to um, advance their careers through training and mentorships and networking opportunities. And underpinning all of this is, of course, what I was talking about before in terms of those, that, those power dynamics and the norms and the roles that women and girls are expected to play in societies. And WASH organisations like WaterAid are working within communities to help shift the entire community's understanding of what is possible for a, a young person, whether they be a boy or a girl, a woman or a man, and, and to start to question some of those um, embedded assumptions about what your role is in, in your community and in your life really successfully. And that has helped women to achieve um, positions in water resource management committees and um, organisations and, and take steps towards um, leadership positions and be accepted and, and um, appreciated as leaders. Um, Duncan, you raised before the um, disjunct between the climate change debate internationally and the water scarcity debate. Um, Howard Bamsey, one of our guests uh, on the podcast, was of the view that climate change and water scarcity are actually one and the same problem, and yet the importance of water in the international debate has actually diminished over the last 20 years. So even if climate consciousness continues to build, Shouldn't we water practitioners be really worried about that? Yes. <laughs> Quick answer. Um, I think it comes back to that discussion on the North Star. There's something missing in the water offer, if you want to use that awful language, you know, um, in terms of the wider public, in terms of the inspirational um, qualities that you get. You know, people become uh, obsessed with climate change in a way that, that few people apart from when it's affecting them personally, get obsessed with water. So I think there's there's a gap there, which, you know, I won't repeat myself, but it's definitely something that's worth looking at. And so, Duncan, you've written about that some of the advice you give um, activists and, and practitioners in international development is learn to dance with systems, to not underrate the importance of local level change, even if that change feels or looks a little bit mundane, and to recognise that even the most undemocratic regimes still, still need to seek legitimacy with their citizens over certain issues at least. Um, if maintaining optimism about the possibility of change is so important, and you talk about um, your son who's an activist and I think dedicated your book How Change Happens to um, your children as activists, um, what other things do you tell activists who might be in danger of losing heart? 
Well, that's been a big topic for the last few years. But first of all, let me just say that I did not come up with the phrase thinking in systems. Uh, um, dance with the system, that was Danella Meadows. And I will get absolutely battered if I uh, try and claim that phrase. Uh, Danella Meadows, fantastic book, Thinking in Systems. It was her phrase. I just stole it with credit. Um, I think, you know, this is the benefit of being old, I guess, um, that, that you can take a longer view on some of these things. And... You know, there's that phrase from, I think, Heraclitus that the only thing permanent in life is change. The change is going on all the time. So a lot of it is not intentional, is not driven by activism. Some of it's driven by technology. Some of it's driven by demographics. So what I was arguing in the book is that you have to be able to ride and see those tides and dance with that wider system, not get too hung up on your own activism, because then you'll spot the opportunities where your little bit of activism may push the needle a bit. So it's about... It's about endless curiosity. And the curiosity, I think, actually is also a way of maintaining your optimism because so much fascinating stuff is going on out there. Um, just in terms of how do you keep motivated, um, I think just go back 100 years and see where we were 100 years ago. You know, um, a little bit further, you, you know, infant mortality, the number of babies that die is a pretty direct measure of development. The number of babies dying in New York at the beginning of the 20th century was higher than any country in Africa today, you know, even though the wealth was comparatively higher. In, you know, things have got better. There's a book by Charles Kennedy called Getting Better, which is the sort of Panglossian, everything's great, everything's getting better view of the world. I don't go totally for that, but it's certainly worth thinking about that. Um, similarly, literacy, similarly, women's rights. So you have to take this wider view and say, okay, there are blips and downturns, but you know, uh, uh, you know Obama, the, the, the arc of history tends towards justice. And I think that that, is, uh, that keeps you going during the dark times. So we've been through some pretty dark times since 2016, especially in the UK, um, but not just UK. That's <laughs> just, you know, um, we've had some bad years. Um, and you have to take that longer view if you're going to stay motivated. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Melita, you know, I know that we've talked about this a bit um, to, in this um, conversation, but also with Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Slatcher and Mina and a number of other guests, they've mentioned, although we know not everyone's convinced by graphs, they have mentioned the importance of data uh, and quality, accurate information, as well as these powerful narratives and stories to really shape attitudes and inform decisions and um, really trying to shift the dial. But, of course, you know, we've also seen in the domestic and international climate change debate that, as we've talked about before, being right, yeah, Duncan said it at the beginning, right, being right isn't enough. It doesn't change necessarily people's minds. Is there anything else that you're thinking about that we haven't talked about yet of what's missing in that that global story and how we can draw the thread from the the local impacts into that global story well rosie is a researcher and a promoter of evidence-based policy and practice this is the sort of question that keeps me up at night <laughs> am i channeling my energies in the right direction yeah, fair enough <laughs> <laughs> what's going to work um yeah, look, the way I sort of think about it to reassure myself is, well, what, what do we need data and information for? Um, we need it to understand what the situation is, to provide feedback and to respond and adapt to the information in a perfect world. Um, so when we, when we think about water data, I'm sure initially, like, what comes to mind? Comes to mind probably 
water quality, water quantity, temperatures. Um, all of these things are quite void of emotion. Um, although I must say I've met some pretty passionate water modelers in my time. Uh, anyway, so when we talk about data, we obviously need to be talking about valuing and collecting other types of information, so qualitative information, uh, because we know that knowledge is more than numbers. And qualitative approaches are also really good at capturing different voices, and they're great at, um, at revealing things that are hard to measure. And that might involve, you know, be something like women's involvement or women's um, empowerment or women's um, decision-making, uh, et cetera, and managing and using a water supply system or designing one. So all these sorts of things, very hard to put into numbers. So you need qualitative data. So when, when I talk about data, I'm, I'm talking about content poll. Um, so I think, yeah, in terms of your question about what are we missing, we're missing more than good quality um, qualitative data. Um, we're, we're missing, we do need more of it, but we also need to be using it to, to inform the way in which we adapt our approaches. We're still quite in, um, not so much the wash sector, but a lot of people sort of on the fringe of the development sector are still in the good ideas mindset. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did this? Because that would work for me, so surely it would work for them or, um, yeah, any number of assumptions around that. So, yes, we need great data to inform what the contextually specific solutions are for, for that locality because water is so different in every context in terms of the climate, in terms of the resources available and the way that they're used. Um, what else are we missing? I think I kind of touched on it then around the emotion, the feeling, the heart of the issues Maybe to answer Duncan's sort of meta question, what, what's the sector missing or where have we gone wrong? We, we kind of come from an engineering basis. We come from numbers, from making solutions to, te you know, technical solutions. to and, and that's very fun and creative, but it just hasn't worked because of the human element. And so maybe what we're missing is, is more of that human element more of um, what Rebecca Huntley talks about in her change, how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference. Uh, she says she had to get emotional. She knew conceptually about climate change and that that was, it was a really big problem. But when she actually felt it, when she looked at her children and thought about, you know, the impact on them and their generation, that's when she, that's when the, the, the dial was turned up to action. So, yeah, I think it's sort of like along the lines of what I was talking about before, extrinsic and intrinsic values, when the values piece, um, that is long-term, um, but it, it can happen. Like Doug just says, you know, there are changes from 100 years ago and some of those are, to some extent, values changes, what we, what we value, what we care about, what we put our effort into. Um, but, yeah, I guess, as you say, there is a big gap between knowledge and political action. Um, interestingly, I feel that COVID could be a, a small window into, you know, potentially better future in the sense that we've now got politicians on our TVs every single day saying we have taken the advice of the, of the health experts and we are following the advice of the health experts. Yeah, but they're lying. <laughs> Say again? They're lying, unfortunately. 
<laughs> well, on our TVs, they're saying that they're taking the advice of the health experts. And, and wouldn't it be great if our politicians were getting up and saying, we've taken the advice of the climate, water and gender equality experts. So let's, let's try and get to that point. Um, look, another thing that comes to mind is that we've got, we've got plenty of behaviour change and behavioural economics research and studies to draw on in terms of what actually shifts people's behaviours. Um, Duncan talks about this beautifully in his book and, you know, the, the influence of our peers, of norms, of, um, and also of, of change and, and the possibilities of change being better, to, better than the status quo. We have to feel convinced that what we're being asked to change to and towards uh, is, is better and a, a world where nobody uh, has um, water scarcity and, and nobody is open defecating and, and a, a world where everybody has access to the essentials of life is a better and a beautiful and brighter vision. It's just that we need to get better at selling that in a way that resonates with people, makes them feel attracted I don't, I don't mean people in those contexts that are suffering. I just mean people um, that are external to that who are not motivated to, to advocate and to try and create the change that, that we need, um, you know, societally. So to sum up the point, I think we need a deeper understanding of how change happens in each context by Duncan's book and um, the role evidence plays and how it needs to be best communicated, how it can be communicated in that context that will actually elicit change. And yes, numbers and graphs are not for everybody. They have their place, um, but let's focus on trying to get people to feel something and, and sort of be drawn towards that new vision, that new future. Yeah. And of course, um, the water sector is not the only sector in international development that's occasionally guilty of forgetting to rise above the technical and um, and and go for the heart and go for the for the emotional pull, particularly uh, with the um, less engaged and the less expert, um, but those in society who either fund the international development um, actions that we want to take or um, or, or need to benefit from from more of it. So, um, yeah, we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much. Um, but you talk about you talk about those dynamics of change and drivers for change and um, much of what Duncan has written about is, uh, is to do with assembling coalitions around ideas. So, Melita, should we be looking in um, the water space to co-opt existing forums within maybe the UN or international civil society, or should we be looking to more grassroots approaches and um, towards linking peoples with common interests or perspectives who may not have had a collective voice before and who may not have um, may not have had the opportunity to form those coalitions before? Well, yeah, we need both. Um... The current thinking on working politically is at both levels, at that grassroots level, at the international level, and the connections between them is a very interesting space to, to watch. I'm doing some research on those um, north-south coalition dynamics and who holds the power, who, who sets the agenda. Um, international Women's Development Agency has recently released a fantastic report on decolonising north-south ships in, in coalitions. So I'd really recommend that report to everyone. 
but that's going into the, the, I guess, the dynamics within coalitions. So coalitions and, and uh, networks are essential and important, but we also need to look at how, the, how they're um, set up and who they're, who they're benefiting and whose voices really are being amplified in there. So I'm, very, I'm a very big fan of working within coalitions locally and globally. So, for instance, in Australia, we have the WASH Reference Group, Australian WASH Reference Group, that is a, a group of uh, civil society organisations, research organisations that come together to share knowledge and also um, lobby the Australian government to, to really um, step up in terms of WASH funding and also the quality of programming that Australia uh, funds and, and things like improving monitoring, evaluation and learning. Uh, so we've, we, we work at that level. So that would be somewhat of a local Australian WASH um, coalition. And then globally, we've got Sanitation and Water for All, which has, um, you know, some, some decent profile and some fantastic uh, expertise in it. The former rapporteur for the Human Right to Water Sanitation uh, leads that. So there is there are some great global coalitions that we can support and be part of. For the Equal Aqua uh, Coalition by the World Bank, is it's more a network of organisations supporting things that I was talking about before in terms of women and diversity within the water sector in the workforce and um, and connecting organisations up all around the world who are interested in improving the dynamics within the workplaces with an understanding that if we if we walk the talk we're going to be much better at implementing gender equality inclusion practices in our programs outside of our organizations well um we've covered so much ground in this conversation um and one of the things that michael and i've had a lot of feedback from listeners is is they really love our last question that i'm about to to ask you both uh, and that's really the question of hope and we have heard both the challenges from you both but also a real sense of optimism and possibility and um and some of the things we need to do to affect change so can I ask um, you, Duncan, first, uh, what gives you most hope uh, that we'll take the next meaningful steps towards the changes that need to happen uh, to achieve sustainable water resource management and also our vision of achieving universal access to water sanitation and hygiene in the next nine and a half years? I think looking back and looking forwards in terms of generations, so as, um, as Michael said, you know, I looked um, both my kids are activists and they both do it much better than me. One's a researcher and one's a grassroots activist and they, both of them are just much more considered, effective, strategic, you know. So that, that gives me personal hope. But then just looking back in history, think about how your great-grandparents lived or your grandparents. Um, and that's true not just in the rich world, but in, the, yeah, in, in many countries around the world. That's been huge progress. So, you know, I just think that if you can get out of our current bubbles of concern that can actually give you the hope to go back into those bubbles and make stuff happen. Yeah, the power of social movements is undeniable. Um, I'm looking a little bit more recently in my source of inspiration. Uh, so we've, we've seen history, as you say, that people have collectively changed their circumstances and their societies for the better. And just most recently, the Black Lives Matter movement and also the Uluru Statement from the Heart movement are two 
um, groundswells of change that uh, have really picked up the pace in the last few years. And they're giving me hope and optimism for the future. Um, they're both leading our societies to take that next step um, towards decolonization and ending racism. And they've globally been inspirational for so many people all around the world. There's been that real sense of solidarity around the world, especially for the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, it was, it was just born in 2017, which is only five years ago, and it's already had a huge impact in the political landscape um, of Australia in terms of taking those next tangible steps towards reconciliation. And um, because it has been created by Indigenous um, Australians and um, they are the ones leading the agenda and saying we need voice treaty truth and that is the agenda. Uh, I think that that's very exciting and a fantastic model of how uh, future movements um, will play out as well in terms of solidarity with locally um, created and, and um, generated movements. So even though those two, you might think, oh, what's that got to do with water? I kind of still come back to that point around the values and the vision. And a lot of the reason why we have, um, you know, poverty and, and um, inequality and access to water sanitation comes back to those exact issues around colonisation and racism. So by having movements like those changing the world, we're actually also changing the landscape with which the WASH movement can tap into support and, and accelerate. Thanks, Melita. Um, Melita and Duncan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we've covered, as Rosie said, a great deal of ground, but it's been uh, a very effective look back on this series too and uh and the, the issues that have come through most strongly from, from all our guests. So uh, this has been the final episode in this, the winter series of the Goodwill Hunters podcast. We'd like to thank again our guests today, Melita Grant and Duncan Green, and our guests throughout the series, Rose Kagwa and Mina Gulli, Kevin Rudd, Navara Kine and Alison Baker, Malcolm Turnbull and Howard Bamsey, and Karen Millwood and Tony Slatcher. Thanks very much for listening.